0: It is a great great joy and my privilege to be back in the pulpit and it also proved to be very a very very sweet provision of God through the leadership to allow me the past four weeks uh, to be to not have to prepare a sermon and it's not a It's a labor of love. I I love to preach and I love all the preparation and the prayer that goes into uh, preparing a sermon, but, um, and I noticed, give a shout out, I thought I saw uh, Tracy Williams, maybe she's walking Riley to the nursery, but having missed uh, Jonathan, the elders gave me uh, four Sundays off from preparing sermons just to dedicate myself to some other things, and it turned out providentially that I had a number of family matters, um, dad being hospitalized, listing our home, putting, getting it ready on the market and other things, to really be a time to take care of some family business. And uh, that was great. But there was something else that took place. I was able to have extended times of daily worship Extended times uh, carved out each day, where instead of 15 minutes of reading and journaling and praying God's Word and meditating, I could take an hour and a half to two hours. And in that, I began a journey to recapture my heart's desire. Um, I won't go any further in this, but I will tell you, I found again my heart's desire in the very person and the presence of Jesus. It became very, very immediate. Unless you're extremely young this morning, everyone in this room's experienced the physical loss of someone dear to them. In just the last Day, a very good friend lost his grandmother, Lucy Jones, of the Jones Ford legacy. And this friend, David, is mourning her loss along with the other family members, and they are remembering her days and her times. And there are people in this congregation, members of this church, Who have been impacted by Lucy Jones? They've been, they were hosted years ago, perhaps as a college student or a a resident of Charleston at her Sullivan Island beach house. Uh, She was quite a character, and there are a lot of memories of this uh, surfing grandmother and her exploits. But most of all, the memory of her great love and her intimate walk with her Savior and Lord. And so the family is comforted because having lost her, she's disappeared physically. Having lost her appearance, they know where she is. But we're going to look in this series of four weeks going to Easter. Of uh, We're going to look at first Mary this morning, then the disciples, then Thomas, and then Peter, and their experience of having lost the physical appearance of Jesus following His crucifixion and His being entombed in a graveyard and that appearance being restored in the transformation that it made. And this morning, I want to speak to the Marys in our congregation And that, not simply women, though it was first honors to women that Jesus appeared. The first person that Jesus, a risen Jesus, appeared to was Mary. But I want to speak to the Marys among us who are those that are believers in Christ, but you've lost your joy. You've lost the joy that comes from a very real sense of the nearness and the presence of your Lord Jesus Christ. I want to speak also to the Magdalens in our group that have not yet had even a first encounter with Jesus. Those that are seeking this joy that we Christians talk about, though they may not have identified it, lying in Jesus Christ and His presence with us, speaking to us, guiding us, leading us. So this message this morning is for all those who are saying, oh, oh, I so wish that I knew where to find this. Where to find a real tangible Jesus, and to regain that sense of nearness and communion and delight that comes from being in His presence. So, I want to say in this message a word of great, great hope. And that word is this, the Jesus that your heart desires is very near to you. And he will appear to your heart's eye. He's not going to feel, appear so much physically to you. Though, though there are accounts of him appearing visually. But he will meet your heart's desire to appear to your heart's eye if you, if you will recognize him as a risen living savior as he promised to all who seek him so let's look together at the Lord's appearing to Mary to discover that this is so and if it's true that Jesus will appear to those who seek him then we want to discover how can I gain this fresh appearance in Jesus's of Jesus in my life so I want you to look at your outline and I want you to see that it's Five actions. It was very hard to to make this narrative of Jesus appearing to Mary into a, 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 a comprehensive outline because there's so much activity going on. And I want you to see five actions. Mary standing at the mouth of the empty tomb and then see Jesus standing behind her. And then Mary turning to discover Jesus and then Jesus teaching Mary about his appearance, and then Mary going to tell the disciples about his appearance. Action 1 begins with a, but Mary stood. Now, as a Bible student, as a disciple, when you read in the Bible, but, that points to what's preceded. And so it's important that you gain a, a context of, What is so important or what difference does it make that Mary is there? What's the but Mary? The first ten verses of chapter 20 tell us this. That there was not one Mary at the grave, but there were three. Now it doesn't give them by name, but at the end of verse 2, chapter 20, it says that Mary is reporting to the disciples that the tomb is empty. And she says we do not know where they have laid him. The other gospel accounts share that there's Mary of Salome and Mary the mother of Jesus and, and Mary Magdalene. She's set apart by that name of where she is from. And please don't, we have, it's only because of church history and it's, there's no biblical foundation for it at all, but some church historians had said that Mary was a prostitute. They even made her to be the saint over brothels. All the Gospels account that they tell us about Mary was she was from Magdala, thus Mary Magdalene, and that she was someone that Jesus cast seven demons out of. But we don't believe or have any evidence that she was ever an immoral woman, just someone who knew what it was like to be a captive of demons. And so Mary is there at the tomb with these other two women. And she is there because we last left her on a Friday. It turned to a Saturday, which was a Sabbath. And they had to stop the work of preparing the body. The anointing, the spices, the wrapping. The body was placed in that tomb. The stone was rolled over it. Now it's Sunday, the first day of the week. It's Sunday and the tomb is empty. It's a work day. But for us, it's become a resurrection day. Sunday is now our Sabbath, our chosen day of worship. And every day that we worship on, every time we worship on Sunday, it's a resurrection Sunday. And we come into this place even like this like, like Mary and then the other disciples will come before the tomb looking. This time, though, we see in our midst a risen Savior. And not simply an empty tomb. She speaks to the disciples. John and Peter race to the tomb. John getting there first. John goes in or stoops to look in. He assesses the situation by seeing the linen cloths. He agrees he's missing. Peter arrives on the scene, goes in, he sees the linen and how it's folded. He agrees Jesus' body is missing. It says though in verse 9, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they see evidence that confirms the women's testimony that he's missing, but they haven't connected. There is no hope there is nothing but continued sadness and mourning because Jesus has disappeared and now there's not even the appearance of a of a corpse and so they leave they go back to their home verse 11 but not Mary i would like to define it mary stood her ground but mary stood Mary, did, she would not be content to go back home. She stayed. She stood in the place where she had last saw Him. Recall that she had prepped that mangled body, taken down from the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, and I won't read the whole verse, but the description, an ancient... 2,000 year old prophecy in Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 describe the abuse of Jesus in this manner. Stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes. That's what she was expecting to see in that tomb. That was where she last saw Him And she stood looking again for Jesus. She's weeping. We read that she's weeping. And now she's weeping, not simply mourning his death, but she's weeping at the loss of the one that she loved. It says that she stooped to look. We believe the tomb was probably so small, don't think a vampire's crypt, but think a tomb just enough for a slab for the body to be laid out upon. That the angels, there are two angels in there. They're managing to fit in there. But like John, like Peter, she's stooping down and she's looking in and she's assessing the situation. And seeing nobody, she just continues to weep. After a lot of thought, I don't believe that she was standing there at the grave, standing there at the tomb, wanting to find closure, but wanting to just continue to either see Jesus as she believed dead or to prepare that body or just to sit. She wanted the fellowship that they had enjoyed to continue. She wasn't there simply to put flowers on a grave. She was there because she had hope against hope, though no reason that she could define for the relationship to continue. He was the Son of God and she worshipped, loved, served only Him. But He's been lost in relationship to her. And now these two angels are there and every account, Every account where angels appear, people fall to the ground on their faces in fear, but not Mary. That's how how strong her desire is. A desire so strong that fears would not put that desire aside. I believe if it were demons there, she would not have been put off. She doesn't fall to the ground. Instead, she is not put off by them. She continues to look in that tomb. She continues to look. Her desire is so strong. Can I say personally, she doesn't care what other people think. She wants to find Jesus, she wants to see Jesus. She wants that relationship again with Jesus. She wants Him so alive in her life that other people are not important. Not their agenda. Not their laughter or their their ridicule that she would be seen to follow Jesus and desire Him so intimately. She is not put off by that. Why is she weeping? She's weeping because she wants Jesus. Now, Jesus at this point is standing behind her. We see this in verse 14. She turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now, I'm going to come to this in just a minute, but this is turning number one. This is turning number one. She is looking into the tomb for Jesus, whom her heart seeks. And she turns around and saw Jesus standing. Question, what made her turn around? Now, I would be fair to say that there are scholars that say, well, the angels, perhaps the angels stood in the presence of their master, the king of heaven. Well, one scholar says, no, you know, in the, in the east, that wasn't really... A, a, a formal sign of respect to stand in people's presence. That's more of a Western culture. Well, maybe the angels disappeared, one scholar says. They just poof! And then Mary's like, well, it turned around. I think differently. I agree with Charles Spurgeon, who said, I have at times in my reading and listening to God speak in His Word, had such a sensation, it was as if He were truly, physically present, though my eyes did not see Him. And I can testify that in the last number of months, I have had this experience a number of times. But here was the cost, loved one. The cost was my tears. The cost was my desire. What are you seeking? What is the joy, what is the source of this joy that you seek? Where does it lie for you to find your heart's desire? And that is a searching process. And many times we only get there because joy has been removed. Our desires have not been fulfilled. Our experience for Jesus has disappeared. Gone dormant. Gone cold. And our heart begins to break and we weep and we're like, Lord, nothing is more important. Nothing is more important just to sense your nearness. That's what I believe. And I would encourage you, if you want for that experience, perhaps talk to older saints. Ask them if they ever experienced this. And how did they find this experience again? Look at verse 15. Oh, by the way, do you see that Jesus was standing there and she didn't know it? Initially, she didn't know and recognize that it was Him because she did not know that it was Jesus. There are a lot of times that things will happen in the course of the day and it was Jesus. You just didn't recognize or attribute it to Him. Wendy and I have a prayer and it's not original with me. It's a, it's a, I got it from Paul Tripp and he said every day before he leaves his home, He says before he gets out of bed, he has three prayers. Lord, and the first is a confession. Lord, I am helpless. I need your help. Number two, help me, Father. Help me today. Number three, may I experience where that help comes from, even and, and not despise how that help comes. Not overlook it. Because it could be such a small thing that we wouldn't think, oh, that's not God. But it's His provision, or it's His reminder of His love. It's His consoling our, our heart, it's His strengthening our desires. It could be some small kindness, but it's Jesus working through that individual or person. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Why did she not see that it was Jesus? Why would she suppose, Oh, he's a gardener. And not only that, he's not a friend to me, he's a foe. You, you've probably removed him. What is this? He's not a plant to uproot and throw out. This is Jesus. Where have you taken him? oh man, I don't think I'd want to deal with Mary in that state. She supposed him to be a gardener? Why didn't she recognize Jesus? Why wouldn't we? Well, perhaps it says the other disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke, we read in chapter 24, verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They were kept. Maybe Mary's eyes were kept just yet from seeing. Maybe as Jesus is asking those questions, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Maybe He wants to really tease this out. Do you really know? Are you you just curious? Are you just got a job to do and you just want to finish up anointing that body and tucking it away and getting closure on this? Or is it really a continuation? Is it really your heart's desire to not be separated from Him who you don't see? Maybe it was the weeping that allowed her not to see. Maybe she was just crying so much. A lot of of scholars say, well, she was just crying. No. She seems to be pretty clear. Again, I agree with those that have said it's in the actions. It's in the actions. If you look in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned. So, Jesus catch this action. She's stooping to look in the tomb. She has the encounter with the angels. She's weeping. She senses that something has changed. Someone has drawn near. But she doesn't recognize it as Jesus, but something has drawn near. She turns. She sees Jesus standing there, but does not recognize Him. He inquires of her heart's search. And what does she do? She must, though it is not mentioned, she must have turned back to stoop again and look in the tomb. Then Jesus says her name, Miriam. And then she turns and sees Jesus for who it is. Why did she not recognize Jesus? Why did she not recognize Him when He was standing right there? Because she was looking in the wrong place. Instead of maintaining her gaze upon Jesus... Instead of allowing her mind to recall that he had said, I must be crucified and I give you the sign of Jonah, I will rise again. Instead of putting those things together, she looked among the dead for the living and he will never be found there. He'll never be found among the inanimate objects of this world. Nor will he ever be found with just the intellect that just knows the facts about him. We read in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. We read in Proverbs 8, verse 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. She was diligently seeking, but she was diligently seeking Him that she loved in the wrong place. But Jesus doesn't chide her. He doesn't rebuke her. Not at all. Nor me. When I'm looking for Jesus, He's my longing. But I, maybe I'm just reading too many books, but not His Word. Maybe I'm listening to some really good preachers, but not listening to this preacher. Maybe I'm, I'm listening or looking for Jesus in certain scenarios, Or I'm looking for my desires to be met in certain things that never will, never will manifest Jesus. We need a real Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And he stays. He doesn't chide her, but he gives her the shortest sermon. And at times, I wish that I could give you a short sermon. But he gives a short sermon. He gives a one-word sermon. He gives a one-word sermon when he says her name. And she turned around. Bruner, in his commentary, says this, and it's a lengthy quote, but I ask that you bear with me. Bruner says this about Mary turning around. In the one or two seconds that this turn took, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis. And at about this turn's one second midpoint trajectory, history too moved almost imperceptibly from B.C. to A.D. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation, in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. She is the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. The world has become a different place. And it has for her. And it has for us. The seeker has found her heart's desire. Or rather, may I say, He found her. we got to go through these final three actions, and I only have a few notes on that. But let me conclude. Mary turns the second time at the sound of her name. And as I read for Kids Corner out of John 10, the sheep know his name. And knowing a bit about farm animals... Farmers, cattlemen do, shepherds do, I'm sure horse ranchers do. I know people that raise chickens in this town do. They have not only names for their chickens, they don't say chicken number one, chicken number two. They have pet names for their chickens. I believe the shepherd would call his his the names of his sheep. And they would know their individual name. It would be so personalized. In this case, Jesus says Miriam. Not not the Greek, the Koine Greek, but her native language. And it's a name that she would have heard from his lips previously. A name that when he spoke it, he always accepted her. He healed her. He always led her. And this disciple... This follower proclaims him master rabbi. Not simply rabbi, but master rabbi. rabbi Rabbanai. Not simply teacher, but a rabbi who would shepherd. Shepherd, like a shepherd over his sheep, his disciples. That's what she wants for. And what is the action? She clings to him. Now, I want to say this as a non-huggy person, that I not only believe that Jesus submitted to be touched. I mean, there's some people that say, He said, don't cling to me because He forbid it. Kind of like, have you washed your hands? Come on. I'm holy now. I'm in my glorified estate. Don't touch me. No. I believe that not only did He not forbid her, but that He actually wanted to be held And to hold her. It was a long hug. Now the next action is filled with a theological lesson. Jesus teaches her about the resurrection and the ascension in connection with his presence. That's why he can say, don't cling to me because there's still something I need to do so that you will never have to let me go. He's teaching her, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You can look and read for yourself in Acts 1, verses 9-11, through that in 40 days from now... Jesus will ascend visibly with his disciples gathered around him. And two angels, perhaps the same two angels, when he's out of sight in the clouds, turn to those around and say, well, why are you staying here? You need not stay here in camp where you last saw him because you're going to see him again. You're going to see Him physically again by His promise to return to earth, which we hold dearly and are comforted by. But the promises of John 16 with the Holy Spirit says, I will come to you and not leave you as orphans who have lost someone, who does not have the appearance of someone, who is mourning the loss of someone and must fend for themselves. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send to you a Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus to abide within. We'll talk about that next week. But with my mind's eye, it is possible, oh, it's possible to have this appearance of Jesus again. And he's saying, I've got to go in order to return very soon so that I'll never leave you again. But we can drift. And that relationship can go... Cold at times. But Jesus is always, always available to the brokenhearted and to those that seek him. He will show himself to our heart's desire. Well, Jesus shares the gospel with her and then he commissions her, he sends her out. The gospel that he shares with her is this. I'm going to go in 40 days, but I'm going to go to my father and your father. Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. That's the gospel. The gospel is this is that God is not a distant God ruling the universe, not knowing us by name or not knowing the the life that we have and face here on earth, but our God is our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Holy is your name, but you are our Father. Do you see God? Do you see your Father? Do you see God as your Father? And then Jesus, and it is something that my old preacher's heart still struggles to pray this. But I was, as I was driving over this morning, I was praying. I was praying about the message, and I was praying. And this came to mind. My identity is not Phil Stogner the preacher. My identity is not Phil Stogner a pastor. My identity is not Wendy Stogner's husband, even though that's a significant part of who I am. My identity is Phil Stogner, the brother of Jesus. Jesus is my brother. And it's almost it almost sounds heretical to say that. But that's what he said. In Hebrews, he says that he has become our brother because of the propitiation, that is, the satisfying of God's wrath by his death. That now we're family. The gospel has three strands, it has three actions. We're forgiven of our sins and we're saved. We're justified. God now continues. He has now restored a fellowship with Him and He's sanctifying, He's transforming us. And there's a promise that He will restore us as the sons and daughters, the new heaven, the new earth that we were designed to be. This morning, it is my prayer for all seekers. It is my prayer for Two Rivers that we would be a church that is seeking and finding the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again even as we have come to see that that's where the greatest desire of our heart lies. Let's pray. Father, it is a mystery as to how we can actually with our senses experience your nearness the nearness of your Son in this life when physically He is with you in heaven. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray this week for all who long and seek for this, who long for you to hold them, who long for you to speak to them and to speak to our hearts mourning or weeping or fear our guilt, or shame, or stain, that You will, You will approach, and You will hold us, and You will speak to our heart, and we will hear You, and we will be restored to the very joy of our salvation, even, Jesus, as You are restored afresh in our walk and our fellowship with You. To this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.